0: You know, and I've experienced dogs eating stuff that they shouldn't eat, dogs jumping over fences you didn't think it would be possible for them to jump over.
1: Welcome to season two, episode nine of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today, we are talking about a very important company. Without this company existing, there would be no acquired, and it's likely that David and I never would have met. Today's episode is about Rover.com and their merger with Dog Vacay to consolidate the grand rivals of the dog-sitting wars. And we're super fortunate to have with us today the founder and CEO of Rover.com, Aaron Easterly. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're, we're super pumped. So Aaron, this is the part where we introduce the guest, and I was gonna do it from memory, but I wanted to make sure that I nailed the details. So I tried to find a bio for you online, (laughs) uh, which is harder than most folks, you're not exactly a bio person.
0: (laughs) I spend exactly zero minutes managing my reputation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: as will become clear throughout the show.
1: <laughs> well, the one I did manage to find is from Crunchbase and lists you as Rover's top dog. So uh, Rover's big on puns, and we'll, we'll revisit that many times throughout the episode. But listeners, to give you a sense of, uh, of Aaron's background, he was an entrepreneur in residence at Madrona Venture Group, uh, sort of during the genesis and formation of Rover, and, and, and as a, a key part of that. And Aaron was, the before that, the general manager of network strategy and monetization within Microsoft's advertiser... Publisher Solutions Group. Now, Aaron, there are many rumors circulating that you were the youngest GM ever in the history of Microsoft at age 29. Can you confirm?
0: <laughs> Actually, I can't. I, I don't know if, I, if that's true or not. I was a very young GM for Microsoft at the time. Um, and there's no one that's younger than I'm aware of, but I don't know if that's true. Or not.
1: <laughs> and Aaron, of course, came into Microsoft through the acquisition of a Quantive Avenue A Atlas, and it was a, a huge ad tech acquisition of, of that era.
2: So to start the you show, got the most important thing though, oh, that which is, true. is that through your whole life, Aaron has been a lover of dogs, Pomeranians, and one dog in particular, <laughs> more than anything else. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love all
0: animals, uh, but I'm I'm very partial to dogs, and I was owned for 14 years by a four pound fluff ball named Caramel.
2: And we are sitting here in the Rover office in Caramel's den, named for Caramel, with a portrait of of Caramel. Up above Aaron on the wall here. Very sweet. Hey, listeners.
1: This is normally the part where I ask for iTunes reviews or social sharing. We are skipping that today because we only have one very important request for you. Take the Acquired annual survey. If you take it, you'll be entered to win a pair of AirPods or Android-friendly comparable set of headphones. This is incredibly important to us in the future of the podcast. Please, as listeners, give us your feedback at acquired.fm survey. That's acquired.fm slash survey. So we started this last year and we got some really fantastic learnings from it. It's important for us to understand you guys, our audience, for, for a few reasons. Number one is the most obvious. We desperately need your feedback to make the show better. This is a thing where we get a lot of ad hoc stuff. Uh, a lot of you are awesome about emailing us and uh, sending us stuff on Twitter and in the Slack. So great. Um, but this is our sort of one chance to gather really structured uh, feedback across tons and tons and tons of you. So second, we want to understand who you are to better tailor the content and the guests of each of our episodes to you guys. We want to learn more about who you are you know, f- for that and also to be able to share aggregated, anonymized information with potential. Sponsors. So, if we know more about who you are and what you like and what would be useful to you, then we can line up the right sponsors that can provide really compelling sponsored content uh, that that's really additive to the episode and, and makes uh, makes the show better. So, um, that's acquired.fm/survey. We'll leave that open for a couple of weeks. And uh, as I mentioned, we're we're getting really serious about this. It's you know something we want to invest in. So, we're going to raffle off some AirPods. Um, feel free to pause this episode right now and go fill it out. It'll take five, maybe 10 minutes. Thank you so much. All right. Now back to the show. I want to thank the sponsors of all of season two Perkins Coie counsel to great companies. We have with us today, Gina Iben, a vice chair of the firm wide mergers and acquisitions practice. So Gina, at what point in the sale process should a company consider engaging legal counsel? Companies that are looking for an exit should engage legal counsel once they decide they're headed down that path. Often sellers will wait to engage legal counsel until after the company signed a term sheet or a letter of intent. It's really important to make sure that the LOI addresses
0: certain threshold issues that are important to the seller. And although it can be really tempting to punt some of these negotiations to the definitive agreement, that's not
1: in the best interest of the seller as the seller loses leverage after signing the LOI. So having legal counsel participate in the review and negotiation of term sheets or letters of intent will put the seller in a much better position for negotiating the definitive agreements. Great. Thanks, Gina. If you want to learn more about Perkins Coie or reach out to Gina specifically, you can click the link in the show notes or in the Slack. All right, David,
2: all the hard stuff is out of the way. <laughs> now for the fun stuff. Yeah. It's really fun to have Aaron with us because, um, not only is Aaron a great friend of all of ours, um, and we've spent lots of time together, but literally this story is the story of um, you know why we're all here today. As Ben said, I don't think we would have met without it. Certainly, there would be no wave, no PSL, nope, none of it. It all comes from the top dog. <laughs> so thanks, Aaron. Yeah. To set the stage on the rover origin story, and will Aaron will will come in here throughout. But there are really three, three pieces that I want to dive into. And so first, setting the background, let's go back to summer 2011 here in Seattle. It's summertime in Seattle, which is the best time in Seattle. We're, we're just entering into it again here now. There's a company based here, high-growth, high-flying company. It goes by the name of Amazon, which we've covered on this show before. And the stock price is at astronomical heights. All-time high. All-time high. $200 a share and people are wondering can this go on can this hype continue things are going so well The company which had heretofore had just one office had a, an old hospital building up on Beacon Hill They've actually purchased from Paul Allen and started constructing a brand new campus in wait, South Lake Union Wait
1: in 2011 Amazon was still in PacMed. Yep My god Beginning of 2011
2: change. Amazon is still on Beacon Hill
1: <laughs> Wow And listeners, there's a crazy story about that building. It's a little dovetail, but that was a hospital that Amazon converted into their their first large major office before uh, effectively colonizing all of downtown Seattle now.
2: (laughs) Um, And it is now back to a hospital. Totally crazy. But people are wondering, you know, what's going on? They're starting to construct these new buildings. They've just constructed their their new headquarters in South Lake Union uh, here in Seattle. We're going to come back to that. And as part of that, sort of the, the tech and venture funding thaw after the financial crisis is is starting to thaw. Optimism is returning to the tech world and to Seattle. And there's this other interesting thing happening in the world right now, which is this concept called the sharing economy is taking off. For me personally, I had just moved to Seattle the fall before in September of 2010. Uh, to take a job at Madrona, and I had for the first time stayed in an Airbnb in September of 2010, uh, and I knew about it because my then girlfriend, now wife Jenny, her best friend had just started dating one of the early employees at Airbnb, now my partner Riley at Wave, uh, and so I heard about Airbnb is where I stayed when I moved here to Seattle, so this is all percolating, they'd raised a seed round from Sequoia, and at the same time here in Seattle there is an organization called Startup Weekend. And Startup Weekend was really cool. Ben, you were part of it in the early days, right? Yeah, still is very cool. It's
1: uh, an organization that uh, started as a, as a nonprofit and is now part of Techstars that basically gets a bunch of people in a room, most of them having never been involved in startups before, certainly having never founded them before. And it's people pitching ideas and trying to create companies in 48 hours. So you bring together designers, developers, business people, because we never had a better name for business people <laughs> than business people. And you basically try and come up with a... a pitchable concept that has evidence of traction or belief it will succeed by the Sunday night.
2: And chief among the useless business people is our partner at Madrona, Greg Gottesman.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, Greg was also on the board of Startup Weekend, uh, was instrumental in, in building out that organization, but also happened to be an
2: idea person. An idea person for sure. And so all of us, the weekend of June 10th here in Seattle, we decamp to amazon's new campus here in south lake union for a startup weekend hosted by amazon greg and i are participating Aaron, I can't remember, were you there? You showed up at one point during the weekend, didn't you? No,
0: I actually got a call from Greg during the weekend, but I actually didn't show up during the weekend. My girlfriend at the time was there, but I wasn't.
2: (laughs) We we did a phone a friend to, to Aaron. The way startup weekends work is that on Friday night, anybody who attends can pitch an idea. And so, of course, all the useless business people pitch ideas. And I remember Greg about to go up on stage to pitch his ideas, and he's debating between two ideas. I don't remember what the second one was. I was trying to find it.
1: Uh, uh, there's another $970 million company lurking in that second idea.
2: <laughs> Maybe even bigger. What could have been? What could have been? But one of the ideas is Airbnb for dogs. And he asked me, which one do you think we should do? And I said, well, I think there's actually something to this Airbnb thing. I mean, my buddy down there is working there. Like, they're doing pretty well. I stayed at one. It's really cool. He says, okay. Okay. We'll do Airbnb for dogs. Wow. David, you should be a venture investor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and Airbnb for dogs, it was. Greg pitches the idea, recruits a team led by all-star developer and, in his own words, quote-unquote, studly college student.
1: <laughs>
2: the one and only Phil Kimmy, <laughs> Home for the summer, who was participating in the startup weekend. I believe the, the direction from, from Greg during the weekend uh, to Phil heading the development team was... Go to Airbnb.com, clone everything on the site, uh, and replace it with dogs. (laughs) Uh, It should be noted that after the startup weekend, we ended up throwing out everything that was built because it was completely shoddy, but Phil ended up rebuilding it, as we shall see. The company, called A Place for Rover, ends up winning startup weekend. It was a little stacked because the judging panel on the judging panel was... Matt McElwain, one of our other partners at Madrona. (laughs) 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 But that aside, Rover ends up winning the startup weekend. Monday comes around. We're in the Monday meeting at Madrona. And Aaron, of course, is an entrepreneur in residence with us uh, at the time at Madrona. We're discussing the weekend and how things went. And everybody's pretty excited about this idea. So excited that we call up Phil, the Phil Kimmy, the Studley College student who had built things over the weekend and say, hey, can you come on down? And uh, we want to talk about this a little more and maybe turning this into a real company. God bless everybody at Madrona who had the confidence in uh, all of us uh, to do this crazy idea because this was before we were a venture firm. Venture firms didn't start companies. And with all of us there, we started going on that Monday, June 13th. So Aaron, as we mentioned, was an entrepreneur in residence with us at Madrona, and you were working on some new marketplace ideas, right? Because you had been obviously a marketplace expert being at Aquantive and then at Microsoft. What I was trying to remember, what were you working on? It was like a local commerce idea, right?
0: Well, there's a couple of different marketplace ideas I had around advertising and um, small businesses as well, uh, but mostly on uh, customer acquisition schemes and marketing things for those uh, types of companies. Of which I should add, I was totally not excited about. Um, you know, like, I love the digital uh, advertising world. I found it fascinating. The economist and me had a lot of fun with building some of the early online marketplaces. But, you know, after being in it for over a decade, I was having a really tough time getting passionate about throwing myself into another uh, digital marketing startup.
2: Am I remembering right? Was there something about people in your family had worked in local businesses and... Uh, had trouble with customer acquisition that you were (laughs) going to support them with. Oh, that problem.
0: My parents had actually decided to open a pizza and wine bar um, at the time. um, In California, right? In California. You know, the challenges of people who open businesses like that actually being able to devote cycles to doing marketing effectively, it's a big problem. They're typically working in the business, not on the business. They don't spend a lot of time thinking around how to make that efficient so that that monday meeting happens and
1: you guys are kind of discussing hey, this this thing happened over the weekend, at startup weekend, we couldn't get Aaron to come in despite the fact that he's this world-class marketplace expert and economist, he wouldn't drag himself over to, to South Lake Union, but here we are Monday and we're all looking at each other going, uh, we think we should do this. What does the process look like from there?
0: <laughs> so Greg uh, dragged me to meeting with uh, some of the engineers that were on the team over the weekend that he wanted uh, some help evaluating whether or not he should invite them on to kick off a prototype program. And so day one, I was uh, happy to advise and uh, consult on the project. What Greg didn't know at the time though, was actually um, a dog nut, and that I had experienced this problem myself uh, for the better part of 12 years being a single busy business executive with a dog I absolutely adored, uh, but would not take with me on business trips. So it's a problem that I had like all the time in my personal life and over a little four pound fluff ball. (laughs)
2: because, of course, at the time, if you, before Rover uh, and dog vacay, which we will get into in a minute, if you were going on a trip and you were a loving dog owner, you, instead of keeping your dog in this lovely home where he or she lived, it would go to a kennel and be in a cage and locked up, and it was really not a great experience. Well, that was actually the debate between Greg and I on basically day one. So
0: Greg, as having been someone who had used a kennel, um, he had an experience with kennels where uh, it was, you know, overpriced. His dog had gotten mauled. He felt like he had been nickel and dimed. And the debate was, well, that's all good, Greg. But like, I adore my dog. Um, I know lots of dog owners. I'm not sure I know anyone other than you that has ever used a kennel. And so the the big debate was, uh, was more the population of dog owners like Greg Gottesman? Well, of course, I'm going to go to a high-end kennel. Or more like Aaron Easterly, I'm going to go down the Rolodex of friends, family, neighbors exactly. to find someone I can pawn my dog off on.
2: There are two, in my mind, two super, super key insights that Aaron brought to the business when he finally relented and we convinced him to become the CEO <laughs> uh, about a month later. And one was that dogs are family now. And this is was a behavioral change that had happened over the last five to 10 years at that point where dogs went from being pets to being, you know, almost at the level of children. Aaron, of course, could speak from experience on that. But part two, and operationally, I think this was such an important insight into Rover and what has made it successful, is that people were already doing this. Uh, Exactly like you said, Aaron, many people were not using kennels. They were leveraging friends and family uh, close to them. And so... Uh, this was not a new concept of behavior change that we had to do with consumers. We just had to bring it online into a better experience and a closed loop marketplace. This begs the question, you're
1: starting an an early stage venture. One slide in your pitch deck is market size. How do you figure out the market size of something that's currently not being monetized?
0: Um, Poorly uh, (laughs) is the honest answer. Uh, So we initially looked at third party estimates of market size and and you know, the answer there, depending upon what you looked at, you could kind of get to three and a half in some sources, maybe six to eight billion in other sources. So it's it's not small. You know, put that in perspective. You know, that's, you know, about the size of the entire non-search digital advertising industry in the U.S. circa 2008. Um, I think
2: we had six billion in the pitch deck. Yeah, in the first and, pitch so,
0: and, and does that include kennels or is that outside it's of? kennels and private professionals for the most part. But that was what the industry stats were based on, those segments. And so the, the dilemma was, how do you figure out how big the friends, family, neighbor segment is, given that these are oftentimes you know, what we call shadow market transactions? Um, they're people with needs. They have someone meet those needs. More often than not, there actually is a value exchange. A, it's bottle not a, yeah, a bottle uh, of wine. Yeah, uh, bottle of wine. Take your friends to dinner. Quid pro quo, I'll get you next time you need something. So there is a value exchange, but it doesn't get reported in any industry stats. And it may or may not be monetary in nature. A tough challenge. And um, uh, one that we didn't even attempt to solve in the initial Series A pitch. Um, we put in the commercial market and just said, and yeah. there's some gravy on top in this shadow market segment, <laughs> um, which looking back was just really dumb because as, as we found out a couple months later, that... Gravy on top is actually ten times the size of the commercial market. Um, so it wasn't so much gravy; it was the entire cake.
2: Well, and this is so fun because once Aaron joined, you know, we were convinced there was a big opportunity here. If the one of the world's marketplace experts saw the opportunity, we we should probably continue to fund this at Madrona. Uh, so we were willing to we we're willing to fund this, but we thought there's one person in the world who we should go talk to as well, and maybe we would let them into the round, and that would be someone we've also talked about on this show. Greg McAdoo at Sequoia because he had just done uh, the Airbnb investment. And so we send Aaron packing down to the Valley to go pitch Greg. Greg says, you know, yeah, that's all well and good. And, you know, Airbnb is doing great, but like, it's such a bigger market. Like, look at this market size. Like this isn't big enough. Like, <laughs> And of course it's hilarious because now Greg is of course a, a good friend and, and advisor to us at Wave uh, <laughs> and he very much regrets passing on the opportunity. But to your point. The market size that was relevant was not the existing market size.
0: I'm glad you guys thought, by the way, that the fact I was taking the job as an indicator of the market size. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you my personal thought process was quite a bit different than that, but I'm glad that that's what you guys believe.
1: Aaron, was your thought process, wow, these guys are willing to fund this. There must be something here.
0: No. <laughs> you know... Um, For me, uh, life in general is about uh, having fun, challenging experiences that actually have a unique impact where you're contributing something that's different than what other people could contribute. You're not just a cog. So for me, the thought process was, this is an opportunity that I think exists, have no clue how big it is, but it exists at some level. There is a chunk of this I think I can help out a lot with, the deep analytics, the marketplace expertise. I love dogs, and there's a bunch of this consumer side that I don't have a lot of experience with. I've done most of my marketplace stuff in B2B marketplaces, um, like search and ad exchanges and things like that. And so I was like, God, there's just half of this business I'm gonna fall on my face daily. And so for me, like, hey, I'm sure I can add value in some areas and I have no clue what I'm doing in other areas. Plus, I think it's a big enough opportunity to be, interesting to throw myself into, was basically the extent
2: of the thought process. <laughs> it's um, a good thing you didn't tell us that at the no, time. It's, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> uh, well, you know, every startup has to go on a little bit of faith.
1: Okay, so before we dig into the dog vacay side of things, and before we start talking about progression from here and the company's growing, we've got some fun stories that we want to dig into. So one is, the company was originally A Place for Rover, and it was a com.
0: And how, how long did that last? <laughs> well, actually, uh, about seven years now. Our legal name is still a place for Rover. Ah. Um, so anytime we file a document, file taxes, file a Delaware, we're still a place for Rover. Doing business as Rover or Rover.com, but we're still a place for Rover. And I think at the time it was uh, Greg's uh, play on a place for mom, which was a mechanism to find care for... Elderly parents typically. Um, also a Seattle company. And also had a domain name that was available. So, a Place for Rover was an available domain name. Um, Purchased
2: during the startup weekend,
0: actually. <laughs> Purchased during the startup weekend. And so, I think it was as simple as that domain name available, had a little bit of uh, prior art in terms of uh, being used for certain types of care marketplaces. But Rover at the time was not available. And so we had mentioned this a little bit on our last
1: episode in talking about the, the T-Mobile Sprint merger. Aaron, would love to, to hear the story from you. How did you end up with Rover.com? <laughs>
0: uh, you know, this is just one of those cases where connections matter. So some research was done to figure out who actually owned the Rover.com uh, domain name. And it, it turned out it was Clearwire. Clearwire had acquired it because uh, I was rolling out uh, a mobile
2: internet pack
0: for wireless uh, internet.
2: One of the first mobile Wi-Fi hotspots. And they'd actually canceled the product.
0: And canceled the product and also may have run into trademark issues uh, with regards to a French company that had a similar offering named like Rovere or something like that. <laughs> uh, so some combination of Clearwire not being able to invest in a new brand slash some long-term concerns around trademark is my understanding, were doing nothing with it. Had basically decided to put it on the shelf. And uh, as it so happened, one of the other uh, managing directors at Madrona at the time sat on the ClearWire board.
2: Your former boss.
0: My <laughs> <laughs> former boss from Aquantive. When he found that out, uh, he shepherded a conversation around, hey, uh, so you're not using this domain name. Uh, you want to give it to us? And uh, the answer was, no, but since we're uh, not using it, how about we're willing to lease it to you guys for a little while? So we initially uh, leased it for like next to nothing and then bought it pretty cheaply, actually, uh, compared to what five-letter domain names with some level of actually brand equity already right. go for. We, we got, got it super cheap. Near palindrome, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <Near> palindrome. <laughs> you know, just you know, in the US, at least, is this thing that means dog. Yeah. And we're talking about a service that actually makes it easy to move your dog around when you're traveling. So your dog rove around. So it, it was perfect and cheap and serendipitous.
2: One other real quick fun story is that for the rest of the summer, as we were building the MVP based in the Madrona offices, the old Madrona offices at the time, the first dog stay happened in the, the actual live dog stay happened <laughs> in the Madrona office. And of course the dog decided to use the bathroom on the floor in the madrona office oh, got everyone thrilled. and our awesome truly truly awesome uh and lovely cfo uh, and general counsel at madrona troy chickas basically i don't think i've ever seen him more enraged than at that moment and he, <laughs> he was he was so skeptical of rover for years after that <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully everything's you know everything's uh dusted over
0: oh it was about uh, a week after that too where uh <laughs> troy came to me and said you know um it's about time you guys find your own place. <laughs> so we got we got the boot soon thereafter. Um, you know, which was time. You know, we you know did have our own funding and we could get our own plays. But I'm pretty sure the timing of that was uh, driven by uh, the dog with the explosive <laughs> bowels. <laughs> or, yeah, or
1: at least you know like operate a marketplace instead of you yourself sitting the dogs.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Which at the time, you know, a lot of us actually engaged in dog care as well on both sides of the marketplace to try and get a sense for what worked and what didn't work. You know, I was an active sitter for the first several years. I think I still have over 100 reviews on the site. um, So probably booked close to a 1000 nights of care, just as myself as a sitter, you know, experienced a lot of awkward situations. In the early days, a lot of us were doing that to get a sense of what worked and what didn't work for the thing that was inherently somewhat awkward in the early days.
2: I mean, one might call it eating one's own dog food. food All right. right. Uh Okay, moving on. Moving on.
0: Before, real quick, before
1: transitioning to dog vacay, it's worth mentioning to listeners, we've touched on sort of how David and I know each other, but Rover is really to thank for many, many things that have happened in David and my life since meeting, the genesis of Madrona Labs, a, a group that, that we had started inside of Madrona years later to be a startup studio inside of a venture firm, was really the the reason why we justified? Hey, we think there's a chance we could do this, is because of Aaron and Rover, because Greg was able to point to that and say, "Look, we we did it in this super ad hoc way. What if we systematize the process?" And so I left Microsoft and went to Madrona and and uh, met David. And of course, that's the exact same thesis that we have now at sort of this this broader scale and and outside of a, a single firm with PSL.
2: And David obviously instrumental for your marketplace thesis too. Absolutely. I mean, at Wave, it's it's a combination of both of uh, the aspects of Rover, of starting companies and investing in companies at the very beginning before there's a product, as we just talked about, can work, and then also in the disruptive power of marketplace businesses. So... Uh, Thanks, indeed. Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, glad I didn't screw it up and uh, perpetually ruin your guys' careers. So. Uh, Happy with that? Yes. So speaking of, of dad jokes, essentially, um, <laughs> at the same time, uh, not quite the same time, but slightly after as this is all going on and we made no secrets about what we were doing up here in Seattle. And in fact, uh, much of the tech press... Pilloried called this a, a sign of second sign of the tech apocalypse, pets.com take two. But, you know, as Jeff Bezos says, if well, it's the willing to, the Washington Post is willing to put body parts through the ringer. But if you're not doing something that people make fun of, uh, you're probably not doing something interesting.
0: You know, I think we made a list of the top five worst ideas that our VC funded in that year. Ah, yeah. It was a fun press to get. And, uh, (laughs) you know, the the funny thing about the same time that people are like, I can't believe this is a thing, this is embarrassing, why would anyone ever invest money? At the same time that was going on, that, like, the next three or so startup weekends, the idea that was pitched in one was the same damn idea.
2: that's what the copycats (laughs) uh, uh, started popping up. Wait,
0: so people pitched, like,
1: literally the same... Airbnb for dogs again.
0: Literally pitched the exact same idea. And the people who run the Startup Weekend event were like, hey, guys, this one last week or one last <laughs> two weeks. And the judges are like, I don't care. It's cool. I like it. And because in every town, there's a different set of judges that are local and weren't in the last one. So it was new to them. And so we went from kind of, oh, my God, this is almost laughably bad idea to at the same time having like 10 companies announced that they were going to do it. So it's kind of like the worst of all worlds where you have now like 10 potential competitors for an idea that everyone thinks is awful. <laughs> Seems uh, like there
2: may be something to it then. Human psychology <laughs> is so fascinating. So among the competitors that pop up, the most credible by far is a company based in Los Angeles called Dog Vacay. And Dog Vacate was started in the fall of 2012 as part of the incubator down there, the well known incubator of science, started by Mike Jones, formerly of MySpace, and Peter Pham. And it was started by Aaron Hershorn uh, and his wife, Kareen. And they were dog owners. And Aaron had been a confusing. It was confusing for many, many years. We have Aaron E. up here in Seattle and Aaron H. down in uh, (laughs) Los Angeles. But Aaron H. had been a consultant for many years and had actually worked at a venture fund. He was among the minority of people who realized that this was not a bad idea, but actually a great idea. So they started the company and then in the spring of 2012, they raised a seed round uh, led by First Round Capital uh, and Jeff Jordan from Andreessen Horowitz. From then, that point on, really... The race was on, and it was later that year that Bill Gurley at Benchmark would lead their Series A, and he correctly identified the massive marketplace opportunity here, and Bill had already was famous for many marketplace investments, including the Series A of Uber, and he wrote a canonical blog post called, Not All Marketplaces Are Created Equal. He put forth his framework for evaluating marketplaces and then wrote a sidecar, essentially investment memo that he published for Dog Vacay about all the marketplace dynamics and why this made for such a great investment. And he was completely correct. Yeah. And Bill's set of posts on this are, are biblical for
1: listeners that are, are thinking about a marketplace business. And in fact, David and I were, were talking about a concept yesterday where we're like, we should probably put it through Bill's framework. Like this is this is sort of the way to think about marketplace businesses. And I, in doing research for this episode, just found out it was, it was modeled after the dog
2: vacay investment. Yeah. And so that happened. And then right around the same time, we raised the technically series B since Madrona had done the A. But effectively the same amount of money from Brad Feld at Foundry Group here at Rover. So I'm curious, we on the Madrona Inventure side had lots of thoughts as all of this was happening, but how did you feel, Aaron, when when these competitive financings were happening? (laughs) You know, I think all this stuff matters a lot more to
0: VCs than it does to me. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, at the time, uh, there was a lot of marketplace orthodoxy around every marketplace is winner takes all, Um, and every marketplace is you know, first to scale wins. And you have to be super aggressive because no one can ever come back from being a little bit behind. And so if you believe this, and if you spend a lot of time being a VC and you care a lot about other VCs track records and who are the big names, you care about this stuff. If you don't, (laughs) you don't. And I probably fell in the category of not caring. Now, eventually, I did care when it affected whether or not other people were willing to give us money uh, (laughs) and had to figure out how to speak to it. But it's definitely one of those uh, things where uh, Greg and others at Madrona, you know, (laughs) were a lot more intrigued and concerned around who might be investing in dog vacay than I was. Uh. It's one of these classic
1: things, too. The operator mentality that makes people so good is being able to shut out a lot of the noise and a lot of the things other than put your head down and focus on the business because you're probably going to make missteps and kill yourself long before your competitors will kill you. (laughs) obviously not the case here both companies pushed on and, and were successful for a long time so
2: I'm just going to refrain from all the tail chasing <laughs> analogies the, the <laughs> uh, i mean basically listeners what happens is that was the end of 2012 from the end of 2012 until the merger happens in the beginning of 2017. Rover and DogVacay are in lockstep uh, in terms of growth, in terms of fundraising, at least to the outside and VC perspective world. But underneath the covers, uh, we were doing a lot of really interesting things at Rover, um, and I'm curious to your perspective. What were the things that we decided to invest in that that helped us in the long run? Ultimately, uh, you know, we thought
0: that this business was going to come down to marketplace mechanics um, and how you make use of data. One of the things that a lot of people believe about marketplaces is that they can have great economies of scale. But sometimes people forget to ask the question of where those economies of scale are coming from and whether they happen naturally or they actually have to be earned. And so there are certain cases, like an Uber, um, that the economies of scale can happen naturally. So, for example, you just get more drivers on the road relative to the demand, and all of a sudden your wait time after you hit the button is less. And it, it happens for the most part somewhat naturally. And you can improve and optimize it, but it just happens.
2: Or Airbnb, more people in more cities come on the platform and now you can travel to more cities and it becomes more a part of your life and you book more and then that brings more supply. Our view
0: though, is that most of the economies of scale in this business weren't going to come from just pure scale. It was going to come from the use of data on the back end that there's a big difference in the performance of sitters, there's a big difference in the desirability of certain sitters, there's a lot of subtle micro-differentiation, and so the design of the marketplace mechanics, design the back-end data uh, would matter a lot more than any short-term advantage in scale. And one of the other things that actually gave us conviction around that was that this business uh, was about the shadow market. It was about the people that were using friends, family, neighbors. Businesses that are free to use, I um, think social media can kind of spring up almost overnight. Businesses that have a large existing market um, where a better version or a cheaper version comes along can kind of spring up overnight. But businesses that are mostly about changing fundamental consumer behavior and not the existing commercial market and aren't free to use, those are grinds. You know, they play out over time. Behavior fundamentally changes. There's a limit to kind of how fast you can go on those businesses because you actually have to adopt, uh, consumers have to change their behavior. And in something like travel, people on average travel 27 nights um, a year away from home. So at any point in time, like, very few people actually have a travel-related need. So there was an inherent speed limit on this business. So you couldn't uh, just pump a lot of PR, pump a lot of marketing, and somehow um, create an insurmountable lead. Our view was that it was always going to come down more to the back-end piece.
2: Mm-hmm. I remember you, you talking about and, and giving me and, and Riley uh, the advice as we were starting Wave that these speed bumps at first blush can seem to be negative factors in markets. But if you believe in the ultimate market size enough, they become a competitive moat.
1: This is a certainly an outsider's perspective, but what I think was held to be true in the industry was Rover's really, really good at engineering, at data science, at operations, at like really aggressive segmentation of their customer base and understanding exactly what drives behavior and narrowing funnel, like being really crisp on your, your, your funnel and, and, you know, removing leakiness wherever possible. And in the most aggressive ways, like if there was a dollar that Rover could spend on a brand advertisement versus a way to further decrease. Increase a drop off in a funnel step. It was absolutely going into that that funnel step every single time. How do you sort of look at the way that you guys did that and how it showed up in short term versus long term? You know, so listeners have a little bit of, uh, of visibility on this. I don't think Rover was you know leapt out to to a lead in the early days. You correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in that 2012 to 2014, there's a, a lot of metrics you could look at where it looked like Vake was was really out in the lead.
0: No doubt about it. Uh, Dog Vacay uh, got a much faster start, did a much better job with uh, initial PR and marketing and graphic design. Had a group of uh, well-known Valley investors and got out to a fast start. You know, at one time, LA and New York, which are large markets, Dog Vacay was six times our size in both of those markets. When we ended up doing a deal with uh, Dog VK, uh, we were materially larger in both of those markets than they were. So, it kind of came back from a, a six to one deficit to be a clear leader in those markets. But uh, we got our butt kicked uh, in the early days.
1: It's just interesting to hear hear stories
0: like that and try and draw draw inspiration for future times when you're getting your butt kicked. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it's an interesting uh, conversation because going back to the tuning out noise thing, you know, love Greg. Greg is super helpful about the company, but you know, probably multiple times a week. You know, I'd get calls around uh, how frustrating he found it that he was reading Dog VK's PR all the time and they were in the press all the time and had all this buzz all the time. And and those things work, like clearly the, in in
1: LA and New York is great examples. Get a bunch of sitters, you know, get a bunch of customers.
0: Yeah, and it, you know, definitely um, help get the business off the ground. And I would say um it was also helpful to create an awareness for the category, which had a follow-on benefit to Rover. Looking back, you know, ultimately, I wish we had done a little bit more in PR in the early days. You know, it took us a while to make up the ground on SEO, for example, and domain authority. So we could have been a little bit more balanced. I think, on the net, net, it was the right overall prioritization, but we could have been more balanced in our approach.
2: <laughs> <first couple laughs> and, and to put some more specifics on this, you know, for listeners who aren't necessarily experts in marketplaces. Um, I mean, this, for me, this was like a uh, education on the fly uh, in how to manage these things. It ultimately kind of came down to all the dynamics and investment on data science and the backend and funnels and analytics that we, we did at Rover meant that our conversion rates as, as new customers, new needs were, were hitting the marketplace ended up being much higher over time than our competitors. And, and then not just the conversion rates, but also most importantly, our repeat booking rates. Because as we were acquiring folks, the, the lifetime value of those people, because they would convert at higher rates, but then repeat much more often, just ended up that even though we, we had a slower ramp, the exponential kink in the curve was that much steeper.
1: And the important thing to note here as you think about the equation of cost to acquire a customer versus the the customer lifetime value and trying to make that delta as that as wide as possible or that multiple as wide as possible is they're not a customer until they actually book in a marketplace business. And so the more funnel optimization you can do where you increase the rate of sign up to booking, the more you can spend or and and the the broader you can spend on getting new people in the door. So I think you know, they're not actually
2: a customer until they complete the transaction. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you think about if you're twice as good at turning someone who hits your site into someone that completes a transaction, then... You know, if you're competing over the same AdWords keywords, you can outspend because you know that you're going to be able to more profitably move those customers through your process.
2: Indeed. I think the other thing that cannot be understated, I'm sure Aaron would agree, is a major moment in Rover's history, which was the hiring of Brent Turner in January, January 2014. As COO.
0: Yeah, so Aaron, who is Brent and how did that all go down? <laughs> uh, Brent has been my companion for most of the last 20 years in Seattle. Uh, Brent and I met in the early days or the pre-public days of uh, Avenue A, which later became a Quantive. We've worked together for something like 17 in the last 20 years. There have been times where I've reported to him, times when we've been peers, times when he's reported to me. But the vision of labor is was kind of always the same. Um, so I, it took about three years of effort for me to get Brent to become involved in Rover, I tried to get him as an angel investor in the early days. and Rover's like
1: a war of attrition of people convincing each
0: other to do things.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, For a company founded on love of family
0: members. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and there are some funny stories with people who, uh, when I left Microsoft, were like, hey, just tell me what you're doing next. Whatever you do, I'll invest in. And then I go to them with Rover and they're like, Except that, Except so, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to invest in that business, <laughs> uh, including uh, people in the VC world, yeah, like very angels. well-known
1: venture firms that you flew down to the Valley yeah. to have meetings with. Were like, oh, actually, not. Sorry, not that thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would invest in anything but this. Or like, <laughs> so, what are you doing with your career? Like, <laughs> this seems like the worst idea ever, and you're throwing away your career. Do you know you're doing that? And so Brent wasn't uh, uh, being someone who I'm also friends with and cares a lot about. He was he was more diplomatic than that, uh, but basically he was just like, "Dude, I'm not giving you angel dollars for this. I'm not <laughs> sure there's a business here. I'm not sure." And so like I, I kept on him for a couple years, and was kind of like, "Okay, well here's how we're doing." And each time I was like, "Wow, that's a bigger opportunity here than I thought." And uh, um, so eventually uh, convinced him to uh, join Rover, and in a lot of ways, uh, Brent's a co-CEO, but uh, the best uh, manager I've ever met, the best developer of talent I've ever met, um, the best operator I've ever met, kind of rounding out the diversity of skill sets in uh, the Rover executive team.
2: And we were we were having drinks last night with with Phil Kimmy, who of course is still lead developer for Rover, and the Studley College student that. Separate oh, yeah, we should, we
1: should we we should should tell a little of Phil's story. So after staying the summer, then Aaron and Greg lobbied him to not go back to school.
2: Including calling his parents.
1: <laughs> including calling his parents and, and convincing them, which didn't go over well then and continued to not go over well for, for years. Years. <laughs> years. W- well, you know, so Phil, Phil, of course, did drop out and, and as a co-founder of Rover, built the engineering side of the business with, with a great engineering team into what it is today. And only recently have, have you know, Phil's parents started to come around on, uh, uh, they're, they're, okay. <laughs> Yeah, there's something to it.
0: Well, I think they're both doctors. So, you know, (laughs) both your parents are doctors and you decide, hey, I'm dropping out to go do dog sitting. You know, you can imagine why that might be met with a little bit of skepticism.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But Phil's point, of course, having been along the ride uh, for, for all this journey as well, was that just like we were talking about, you know, if you had to choose a dollar to invest in the early days in your back end and data science and analytics for a marketplace versus uh, marketing and growth, you would you should for sure choose the back end every time. However, ultimately you need to do both. And that it was Brent's coming on board in twenty fourteen that really built the muscle in the company to be able to do both and be world class in both. Cannot understate the impact there. No. Um, well David, do you want to bring us to kind of the year leading up to the merger? Yes, so as all this was happening, uh, I believe Rover and Dog Vacay raised four rounds of fundraising in lockstep three or four rounds. For the most part, RA was kind of their seed. RB yep. was kind
0: of their a, you know RC was kind of their B and we were in touch with them during that time
2: yep so all along, there's a little bit of a dance going on and and of course, you know, on their side on the VC side, which is more what I had exposure to, Bill Gurley had lived through a very similar dynamic with Grubhub and Seamless in the food delivery space, being two competitors in a market, both private companies, both scaling nicely. You could see a path to being large public companies someday in a difficult manner, but ultimately affecting a merger uh, between the two of them, becoming Grubhub seamless, one company before going public. And that really being a great value accretion event for all shareholders, Bill really started lobbying the investor base first within dog but then on the Rover side uh, to consider following a similar playbook uh, in this space. And it ended up taking, gosh, it was, I mean, it was over a year uh, well over a year of uh, lobbying and negotiations uh, before we really. It took many
0: years, actually. Many years, yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, we actually the conversation around putting the companies together actually started in year one. Aaron Hershkowitz and I actually had a pretty healthy relationship, and I actually brought this up with him around the time of the A um, Series A round, and said, "Hey, it seems like the companies um, are onto the same thing." Um, you guys seem to be a lot more competent on the marketing, the PR side. I think we have a lot of advantages on the uh, back end and the analytics and the marketplace side. I think how this is going to play out is you guys are going to get off to a fast start. The, our advantages will matter more over time and then we'll like uh, pass you over time. But, you know, do you want to consider putting the companies together now Um, given that we don't have a lot of overlapping executives, we haven't raised too much money, it'll just get harder over time. Um, So that's the conversation I actually had with Aaron H. um, in year one.
2: Wow, I didn't realize it was that early.
0: Yes. Um, I don't think Greg was super excited about the idea, but it it was uh, uh, year one that I had that conversation. And, you know, generally turned out to be true. I said, hey, you guys are going to raise some money. We're going to raise some money. You're going to raise some money. We're going to raise some money. And that that played out. And it also played out that it was more difficult as time went on to have the discussion. More investors at the table, more decision makers, more overlapping um, functions, more
2: overlapping execs. It just becomes hard. It really, it really did. And uh, this was a lesson to me, you know, as over the sort of year and a half almost two years that it was really active leading up to the actual merger of of how hard it is to affect these things particularly with with private companies and uh, i remember my wife jenny and i used to joke that (laughs) bill uh bill Gurley had like a knack of just calling at the most inopportune times (laughs) and there was one one time in particular where we were we were on vacation we were in um uh, Bill doesn't know this, but we were in uh, in Cambridge, in England, and we were going to Evensong at King's College Chapel, which is this amazing, you know, very solemn event. We were in line; they just opened the doors to the <laughs> chapel. Hundreds of people are filing in. You know, you have to turn your phone off when you when you enter the chapel. And my phone buzzes. I look down, and it's like. Of course, it's Bill Gurley calling. <laughs> uh, so I said, "Hold on one minute." But it was it was hard work getting it done, um, and uh, which I'm sure you will on the operating side agree with as well, Aaron.
1: Aaron, take us through what did the process look like to everyone look around the table and say, "Yeah, we're going to do this," and then after that, the integration.
0: There are several overtures made over the years, and um, including people cornering our investors at conferences and saying, "You yeah, guys should do this." We'd get that over time. And, you know, there's a couple of times where Aaron and I talked around, you know, how we might engage in a process and, you know, it was tough to get agreement. You know, at a high level, um, there's a bunch of things that make getting to agreement difficult on these. And the, the first and is that uh, entrepreneurs uh, by their nature, especially in tech, have to be a little delusional in order to take on the risk of starting a business. That most of the time is gonna make a uh, lose a lot of money before it ever makes money. The odds are stacked against you. Lots of risk. Uh, lots of complexity. Uh, but for you to decide, you know what? Like this is a good decision with my life and my career. You you just have to be a little delusional.
2: Um, well, it's in news to me. You didn't believe in the market size in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Or, yeah, a
0: little delusional or uh, doing the job for different reasons, I guess. Uh, And and so, uh, because of that dynamic, that kind of confidence, faith, commitment, like, we can figure this out, we'll get it done. It also can make negotiating terms challenging um, because uh, entrepreneurs uh, typically have a... Uh, pretty high faith in themselves and their ability to get it done. Um, And and
2: when companies are both private, you know, there's no stock market that's a third party uh, validation you can point to for relative value and share price. Uh,
0: Totally. Yeah. Stock market would be like, okay, here are our stock. Here's what the markets think. You can debate around the edges a little bit. but Most of the time, it's, you know, relative to that. With private companies, you don't have it. Uh, Most of the time, they're not making money at the time. So you can't look at profit multiples. So you gotta look at some combination of revenue, unit economics, relative growth rates, um, and not a to mention
2: creation. more important on the investor side, but but also equally relevant on the entrepreneur side, there are two preference stacks for each of these separate companies uh, in terms of the money that each has raised and. It's challenging to figure out how to combine those.
1: Yeah, and for folks listening uh, who aren't familiar sort of with preference stacks, basically the when an investor comes in and, and does the most recent round, they have the preference in case – it's basically downside protection. If the, the company ends up selling for sort of less the, or in a, in a downside, um, they're sort of the first to get their money back, and that continues in a waterfall on down to the earliest investors and then to the common stock. Of course, the issue David raises is, now you got two sets of those. What do you do?
0: Yeah. Like, do they both investors get to keep them? And do you burden the company with the combined preference? So like, if there's been $300 million in total invested, and that definitely wasn't the case in this case, but do you say, okay, there's going to be $300 million of preference. And so uh, none of the employees are going to get anything until you get well above that point. Um, It can create some pretty perverse incentives. Um, do you eliminate the preferences? If you eliminate them, how do you get someone to agree to eliminate their rights to that? And how do you figure out how much of that reduction is you know, eaten by side A versus side B? And related to the preference tax, but slightly different is sometimes there are also different control or voting rights attached to each round of financing someone has done. So in some cases, just the investors in the last round have a right to veto certain decisions. So it becomes a very complicated decision process with a lot of stakeholders, all in the context of uh, entrepreneurs feeling optimistic about the go-to-loan approach, all in a context of uh, a lot of uncertainty. And that's just getting the deal terms, which for me is half the battle. People have very complicated ways to think about M&A, acquisitions, mergers. You know, for me, there's two simple questions do you have conviction on the deal terms? Like, is it good deal terms? Like, do you think there's going to be more value than what you're paying, whether you're paying in equity, cash, whatever? And the second is, is do you have conviction around the post-close plan? Can you actually execute it? And the second one is often forgotten about. Um, it's tough to get to terms. But in the tech world, if you look at the history of M&A, um, most people, including third parties, would say that the vast majority of acquisitions are failures. It's the basis for this show, <laughs> <laughs> the vast majority are failures. The reason why they're failures <laughs> is not because they were off slightly on the negotiated terms. Yeah. The reason why they're failures is because the execution post-close destroyed a bunch of value. If you don't have conviction in the execution plan, regardless of how good of a negotiator you are, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work.
1: And so, Aaron, what
0: was the execution plan then coming out of uh, out of the merger? You know, in this case, we decided to do what's called what we called a hard cutover. So basically, we were going to migrate all dog vacay customers on the demand side, all their sitters on the supply side, over to the rover platform and basically execute a shutdown of the dog technology and, you know, probably uh, the office. Um, we were going to offer some jobs to people to move to Seattle. In some cases, we may allow people to work remote. Um, But
2: we decided to do uh, a hard cutover. And and again, that made... So much sense because of all the dynamics we talked about before, just the the marketplace uh, of Rover converted at a a much higher efficiency and then repeated at a much higher efficiency. So, again, it's in everybody's best interest to add in all of this new liquidity into the marketplace. There's new supply.
1: There's new demand. It's suddenly easier to find a sitter near you. It's you're finding higher quality sitters or better match sitters all the benefits of of having a lot more people on the platform. David, I'm going to say the word again. And I think now it's 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 actually a thing that I say on the show, which is unfortunate. It's like legitimate actual synergy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. It's actually it's it's true. Um and you know how much of that's uh realizable yeah. um yeah. versus in theory. You know, but I'd say it, you know, it, it's easy to say, oh, this clearly made sense. There are compelling alternatives that smart people can rationalize. You know, um, in marketplaces, uh, sometimes there's the, hey, let's have two independent brands. Um, you know, if you're dependent upon SEO and Zillow,
2: or, which we've covered.
0: A Trillion Zillow. If you're if you're dependent upon SEO or SEM, why remove one of your slots from Google? If you think that there are different consumer segments, so the different brands may actually attract different people mm-hmm. and end up specializing in different things. So for us, you know the, the options we considered is you know two brands are, and two backends, so there's two front ends, two back ends, two front ends, um, but one back end or one front end, one back end. And the challenge with this is like there's pretty compelling rationales for each of the three. Um, and if you look at how a lot of the marketplace businesses have managed this, Not everyone goes aggressively to the uh, one front end, one back end. Um, Very few actually have. Uh, But we were at a stage where we thought that slowing down for two years while uh, a bunch of internal lobbying went on around this, a bunch of uh, systems integration with different tech stacks, different... Uh, Coding languages, different skill sets, different architecture. We just thought it'd be a disaster to lose two years in that type of integration. You know, that if we were further along, you know, if we were already a public company, you know, or soon to be like Grubhub uh, and Seamless, maybe we could have made a different choice. Um, But we just thought it would uh, slow us down quite a bit for uncertain benefit of keeping the brand. Um, but it's also the most offensive thing to propose to another company. Hey, um, we want to do this deal. We're excited about it. And by the way, we're going to quickly throw out everything you've done. Um, is just really, really hard. And yet, if you don't get that agreement in advance, your mm-hmm. chance of successfully executing a deal post-close is like nil. Oh, or at least it'll drag out for a really long time. We thought all this through in advance, and uh, we got agreement from Dog that uh, uh, we weren't going to close on the deal unless both sides could mutually agree upon the post-close plan, execution plan, integration plan. And so kudos to the Dog senior leadership team. Their executives came up, uh, met with us. We kind of laid out each of the three scenarios. Said, you know, here's what we think the advantages and disadvantages of each one. You tell us which one you think makes sense. We didn't even offer our own opinion, and we didn't bias the conversation. Mm. And uh, unanimously, their executive team said, "Hard cut over, go to the Rover platform," which you know probably took a lot of courage. Yeah,
1: and, rational uh, as that may be, there's huge emotional, yeah, you know, attachment huge. to it. Not only what you've built, but the
0: dream of what could be. Totally. And then it creates a bunch of uncertainty. Well, God, if uh, if the platform is going to be Rover, then what happens to the Santa Monica office? What happens to my personal job? Um, I have a lot of expertise on how our system works, and our system's not going to be relevant. You know, uh, I was very proud of the Dog Vacay team um, for being consummate professionals. You know, the right call, but we were unique. If you look at Odesk, Lands, if you look at Grubhub Seamless, Zillow Trulia
2: as uh, well, also. Zillow
0: Trulia. None of those companies had attempted to be as aggressive with the plan as us. We wanted to be done in six months and not two years, not three years, not a year. So uh, kudos uh, to the team for being able to take that on with uh, such passion.
2: This might be uh, among many lessons, um, you know, for listeners in this episode and uh, <laughs> for all of us personally living it. I mean, this is ranks right up there. As hard as it was in terms of, as we were talking about all the stakeholders on the investor operational side taking, taking years to get to a point, to want to do a merger. The speed and effectiveness of the integration and the vast outperformance of it uh, and the combined company. I mean, I remember yeah. we were all both sides putting together spreadsheets, you know, throughout the negotiation process of what we thought the combined value could be and growth thereafter. The company has far exceeded that on all levels. And I think it's a testament to to all of this and the team and the Doug Vacay team for suggesting this and and the rover team for and everybody combined executing on it, um, it has definitely been the best thing for the company
0: and 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 for the
2: companies for shareholders yeah. in both companies.
0: Yeah, I, I think it turned out to be the right plan, executed well. We got done uh, in about half the time and exceeded uh, every yeah, it was goal. three months, right? Three months exceeded the goals on the successful sitter migration, uh, successful owner migration. Um, it was uh, well executed, and um, you know we. Had given stay bonuses to people in Santa Monica because there was uncertainty around whether or not there's are still going to be a job after we got done with the migration. We accelerated. We gave new grants and accelerated a portion of them. Um, that was kind of uh, based on when the migration was done. Hopefully, people feel really good and felt like they were uh, treated uh, well and appropriately rewarded for what a Herculean job they did in a small amount of time. Um, but it turned out to be the right plan uh, with a. Uh, better than um, expected execution.
2: And, you know, that kind of brings us to today. Rover just recently announced uh, the combined company, a major new fundraising. Things are going really well. And and I think particularly, well, we're we're expanding internationally, which is wonderful, but particularly not having the distraction, not having the distraction of all that at a moment when we were just starting to layer in all the additional services besides dog boarding, dog walking, daycare. Uh, all the other in-home services, which have become huge growth drivers for the for the business, uh, was critical.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest reasons we didn't want to slow down. Um, we view this area as like we're in the second or third inning. We're a small fraction of the size we hope to be long-term. Most of our business uh, was overnight care. We had rolled out dog walking and drop-in visits and in-home daycare, at the exact same time we were doing this migration, we launched our on-demand dog walking effort. So Why not? Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, and so it, it was uh, one of our biggest concerns is that it's not like we were a manufacturing plant. And we're like, okay, we're operating at capacity. Now, can we squeeze out a little bit more efficiency? Um, our view is we're nowhere near capacity in terms of what we want to accomplish. You know, let's not slow down. The speed um, and minimizing the distraction of the execution plan was super important. So we could launch on-demand dog walking. We could roll out new offerings. Uh, we could uh, start to look at aggressive international expansion, which we were kicking off um, mm. right now in Europe. Let's do our other sections here
1: real quick and make sure we check a few boxes. A couple of points that I think we haven't quite made yet. Listeners, our next section is acquisition category, where we decide whether it was a people, technology, product, business line, asset, consolidation, or other type of acquisition. Clear consolidation. I don't think there's any, I think we're looking around the room, we're all nodding our heads. There's not that that much has been discussed. There's what would have happened otherwise, where, you know, one thing that I think we touched on a little bit here is the the cost to acquire a customer and the sort of war going on between former VK and former Rover and the dynamic of this type of business and I'll explain sort of my understanding of it and Aaron, you can correct me in areas where I don't have enough sort of sophistication or understanding of it. But this business is a very intent-driven business. So people go to Google and they search on the internet for a solution to a problem that they have, which is I need a dog sitter. So you got to buy all the keywords to cover all of those things. Now, Google's keyword tool is of course an auction. So with two parties bidding it up, your cost to acquire should be meaningfully higher if there's two people bidding for it than if there was just one major player. And so then you have both of these companies that are always aggressively bidding on these keywords, driving up the price. And as soon as there's just, one party, it should theoretically be much easier and cheaper to acquire that, that person who has intent to do the thing that your service provides. Was that a major driver of the acquisition? And have you kind of
0: seen that materialize? Sure. So I, I think the question is, is whether or not the savings on the marketing side was a major area of value of the acquisition? The answer is yes. You know, a lot of people suggest, you know, valuing these types of deals, you know, on strategic value. You're, your multiple as a public company would be higher, you know, with the consolidation, and that's not how we did it. You know, I don't, I, I struggle <laughs> with hand wavy things, and I struggle with this assumption that like um, there's going to be some long term multiple gain when we live in a highly dynamic area where there are lots of big funds and competitors can get funded. You know, competitive landscape change. Um, so we modeled it as basically a cash flow like what is the amount of um, incremental revenue minus incremental hmm. cost and in the case where there's cost savings and it's obviously you add the cost savings over some number of years. And that's how we added it. And it turned out that uh, only about 15% of the value of the deal was Dog Vacay's existing revenue stream. The other portions of value came through other forms and uh, savings on the marketing side um, was a big one. You know, Some of the other ones, though, were uh, uh, better data coverage. So to the degree our marketplace works well because we do smart things with data. In order to do mm-hmm. smart things, you have to kind of, with data, yeah, two things are required. You have to have data, <laughs> and you have to know what the smart things are. And um, <laughs> uh, for the service providers that were on both platforms, it gave us a more holistic picture of how they perform, and do people like them, and do they use them again, and how responsive are they? And then for people that are on just one platform, for example, just on Dog we were able to use kind of uh, those algorithms that we had invested a little bit more in to help evaluate those people. And so we got a decent amount of value from, call it, the economies of scale on the data side in addition to the marketing savings.
1: Interesting. Never
2: would have occurred to me. That's cool. Tech themes and then and then wrap up here. Sounds good. You want to go first, Ben?
1: That was my major one. Was really the era of the fruits of competition lining Google's
2: pockets. <laughs> I have a couple, but I think I think the biggest one is something we've talked about a lot on the show. And reliving the story has brought back to mind and recalled uh, for me the lived experience here. the The adage, the two by two matrix of the way you make money investing or starting companies is not just by being correct in your hypothesis, but having a correct non-consensus bet. And I think back to the early days of Rover and the signs of the apocalypse and pet.com. And I will, Aaron, I will give you money to do anything. Oh, you're doing that? I'm not going to give you money to do that. (laughs) Now, sometimes when you do that, you are wrong and everybody else is right. And then, you know, not only do you not make money, it's not just about making money, but you fail. But the way that you win and that you win really, really big is you do things that are correct and not obvious and rover to me is just a shining example of that in
1: peter Thiel's zero to one what's your secret aaron's secret was dogs the dogs are people too <laughs> uh,
2: but it's all it was also the thing that like you know if you spent 10 minutes and got over the knee-jerk reaction yeah. even though yes we weren't clear on market size and we've joked throughout the episode like we knew there was something here we knew there was something here everything else i think we've covered. yep grading
0: i'm gonna be quick this is an A. Nice job. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on the show today, by the way. Just to be clear, our view is that we haven't achieved anything yet. Um, <laughs> you know, We're still a money-losing startup that may be more on the late stage side, and there's a lot of work to do. It's nice to be right about some things early in the company's history, but we need to be right about a bunch of things go forward, too. Um, but I really appreciate the chance to come on and um, share a little bit of our story.
2: Yeah. So if you're in the Seattle area or not in the Seattle area and you want to be part of a great company, that's already great, that still has a long journey ahead of it. Come talk to everyone here at Rover. Yep. All
1: right. Let's wrap up. First of all, we want to thank Perkins Cooey for being a uh, awesome sponsor of season two. If you like the show and you want to hear more episodes, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client and come join us in the Slack at acquired.fm.
2: Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys we